0: Welcome to Out of the Question, a podcast that looks behind some common questions and uncovers the question behind the question while providing real solutions for biblical world and life view. Your co-hosts are Andrea Schwartz, a teacher and mentor, and Pastor Charles Roberts.
1: Thanks for joining us today for the beginning of our 6th year doing this Out of the Question podcast. And today's episode is our 217th. So Charles, congratulations to you and me.
0: Yes. I feel like we have, uh, um, what's the word? Achieved a milestone.
1: Or maybe now we're legitimate. I don't know. Maybe one or the other.
0: Or maybe we've crossed the Rubicon.
1: <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right. Let's get started. We live in an age where statism is the prevailing world and religious view. And there seems to be this idea that people cannot do what's best for themselves unless there is some degree of compulsion or coercion. And so I got to thinking, why does the state have an interest in forcing children to go to school? Why do we have, compulsory education and compulsory education laws. You would think that most parents would consider it good for their children to learn how to read and write and compute. And yet the assumption is they wouldn't do it unless the state made it a requirement. And then I got to thinking about what happens during compulsory education Well, you do have any sort of indoctrination by teachers but then there are these things called textbooks and the textbook industry is a huge one and it tends to have a monopoly on what are acceptable materials so then i asked myself the question is there a connection between the two compulsory education and the prevalence of textbooks so Charles, before we examine some specific examples in general, what's the worldview? How would you describe the worldview of compulsory education?
0: I think on one level, we can say that compulsory education is unavoidable, um, just like the subject of sovereignty. Uh, education, uh, or maybe I could say education is unavoidable because someone is either going to teach themselves how to survive in this world, whether it be just the rudimentary um, hunting and gathering and eating and shelter and water. You've got to learn how to do those things if nobody's taught you. And uh, if there is someone to teach you, well, then there's your compulsory education. If we're talking about um, an, an education that's going to be imparted by a higher authority, Well, that too is unavoidable. It's going to be either your biological parents acting from the worldview that they embrace, or more often than not in our modern age, and this goes back even further than what we might call the modern age, it's the state that steps in in the place of the parents and um, attempts to educate the children. Now, I'm not sure where in the history of these United States the compulsory part began to show up, uh, but at one time, it was not uh, the state or the county or whatever could not compel a parent to put their kids in a public or government school. but I think that maybe except for some obscure place in the upper upper midwest or something like that um, that 's pretty much the the case everywhere so right. the idea that some authority is going to compel the compel you to educate your children. Well, that's either going to be coming from God Almighty, who tells parents that that is their responsibility to teach his law word day and night to their children. Or it's going to come from the humanistic state, which pretends to do the same thing in its own name.
1: Right. So that's why when people began homeschooling, for example, and everybody thought this was radical and out of the ordinary, In actual fact, that is what the prevailing model was. Parents taught their children how to read. Parents taught their children how to compute. In family businesses, you would want somebody who was capable. And then if somebody had higher aspirations to do something that his parents or grandparents didn't do, like go into law or go into medicine, that there would be um, a desire to further one's education. And so this idea that if people weren't told what to do, so for example, do we have compulsory sleep laws? Do we have compulsory eating laws? Do we have compulsory bathing laws? Well, you may laugh at that, but in the last couple of years, we have seen compulsory medical laws and compulsory behavior laws. So, Doesn't the very fact that compulsion enters into something, Charles, point out that it's not something that the average person would want?
0: Absolutely. We can see this in uh, a different area, but I think it it serves as a good example. You know, um, during the Vietnam era, there was a compulsory military draft. I had to register for it. Uh, I, I didn't get drafted, but I had to register. I was compelled to do that uh, on the premise of, you know, fighting in that far-off land. Well, if you compare what supposedly that was about to, if you're in your home and someone starts attacking you and your family from the outside, you don't have to be compelled to defend yourself. It is an automatic um, response that God has given each person to defend themselves and save their lives and those of their families. So uh, th- there's a difference between being compelled to do something outside yourself that is unnatural and would not normally be the case compared to that which is natural or to that which is, I should say, biblical, uh, because the Lord has built that into us, into our framework, that we are to learn and to obey his word and communicate that information to others. But yes, once the compulsion part comes in, well, there's a reason for it. It's because it is not something that's in the natural order of the way God has created his world, and he wants his people to operate.
1: And so when people begin to doubt their own ability to make decisions and defer, it's not just that the state, is the bad guy, they really have a dereliction of duty because we're all under God's law. And as you pointed out, self-defense, um, determination of right and wrong is something that starts on the individual level, that when you give it to the state, what you're also doing is creating a huge bureaucracy to then manage this compulsion.
0: And that's clearly what uh, what has happened in the area of education. Um, we've had occasion to talk about some aspects of this before. Uh, if I may be allowed a personal reference, I grew up in public school in the public school system here in South Carolina, from the first grade to uh, graduating from high school in the twelfth grade, and then four years of undergraduate studies at uh, the University of South Carolina. And when I started in public school, it was a, a regional. Um, public school with a PTA and all the rest of it. We had prayer and Bible reading in the school. The principal read a devotion from the Bible over the PA system every morning. Uh, and so there was a veneer of, you know, this being something like a, quote, Christian school, although, of course, it didn't pretend to be that, but it didn't take long. Probably, I, I know, within the lifetime, my lifetime of being, quote, unquote, uh, being in the school system to where all of that was thrown out the window. And it was done so by law um and so people would be to reverse the the angle compel not to do prayer and bible reading in those schools because they were worshiping a different god and the the foundation of the idea of public or government education came from a very very and totally different source than that of god's divine word
1: yes and you know it's interesting and this is a bit of a bunny trail but um For years now, the whole idea of prayer before or during a sporting event has been deemed a no-no. And for anybody who has watched the news recently, the 2nd of January on national television, a football player collapsed and spontaneously what took place were members of both teams bending a knee and praying for him. Nobody told them they had to do that. As a matter of fact, in the past, they had been either mocked or um, told not to do that. And yet, that was something that sprung from them in terms of acknowledging that someone higher than human beings was going to have to intercede. And so I think it's a good paradigm to say, once people understand the compulsory part of it and ask the question why is when you start getting some clarity in terms of how do you proceed in obeying God?
0: I think to go ahead and put out, uh, put some book titles out there for our listeners, uh, there are two books that I think uh, are vital to understanding and getting a good grasp on this topic. Of course, Dr. Rush Dooney's book, The Messianic Character of American Education, is one of those books and the other was written by a very close friend of his who now is with him in glory. And that was the late Sam Blumenfeld, whose book, Is Public Education Necessary? I think is, is a great, uh, two volume, uh, way of thinking through and, and researching this topic. And especially in Dr. Blumenfeld's book, he goes into the history of compulsory public education. And shows how it, it developed and changed from the early days of, say, in the Reformation era, which is really the foundation of it. Many people don't realize this. I mean, I know some people of a uh, of a certain political bent, they like to uh, point the finger at the Puritans and say, these are the people who started this evil public school movement. And the fact is that in the Reformation era, uh, the, the men who led that movement felt it was important that everyone know how to read so they could study God's word. Even uh, And John Calvin, in particular, in the city of Geneva, wanted there to be schools and, and men who really were conceived as ministers, but their role was that of teaching the Bible. But uh, Calvin felt it was important to add other elements to that in terms of education. And then when the Puritans and the Pilgrims came to these United States, they followed a similar modem, model. But, of course, like everything else, If the foundation changes, if there is is a a replacement of the true God with a false God, then that's going to powerfully affect education. So I think the biblical model is that the parents are the ones responsible for teaching their children. Now, if they want to uh, engage the efforts of other parents to sort of make that a cooperative effort, That's certainly a a good, acceptable thing. But like you said, the the issue of compulsion is where this gets to be highly problematic. And typically that is only associated with a tyrannical authority. Uh, God's word does not set forth tyranny in the humanistic sense. And so the difference is if someone does not care about educating their children according to the things of Holy Scripture and God's – the biblical worldview – then they should be lovingly confronted and talked to about, well, look, if you don't educate your children, then those who hate God's law will, and you don't want that.
1: But I think, Charles, it goes back a little bit more to, do parents feel capable to educate their children? And because of the status of education in the U.S. for the last 150 years, um, actually maybe even a little bit more than that now, there are people who say, "Well, I how would I teach them science? How would I teach them history?" And this is where the whole textbook idea, as being a part of a statist plan to have a certain kind of citizen. So, and I, I'm even going to be criticizing some Christian publishers because, in a lot of cases, they just have tacked on, "In Jesus' name, Amen." To a lot of the secular viewpoints on various things. And so if we look at textbooks equivalent to somebody took some food in their mouth, chewed it up, and then spit it out, and then everybody else will eat off what that person spit out. In other words, the person who writes the textbook, the people who edit the textbook have a world and life view that if you don't examine that and then take things that you know about for example what's your belief on creation versus evolution if there's a strain of giving credence to evolution then you should be concerned about what predigested food you're getting
0: yes absolutely and that goes back to the point about the foundation um education Whether it's compelled or not, it's going to be taught, it's going to be imparted from a certain point, a certain foundation, a certain worldview. And so um, humanistic theories of education, excuse me, uh, humanistic theories of evolution, uh, of atheism, uh, Marxism, uh, the transgender homosexual agenda, all of these things come from a non-biblical worldview, and that's the equivalent of the very uh compelling <laughs> illustration you used about the uh the, the, the chewed up food spit onto the page. And you know that I guess we could say too, in 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 the in the purpose or the process of education, maybe textbooks as well are unavoidable, or at least some you know codified way of communicating knowledge and information we homeschooled our children. I know you've done some of that. Uh, we've been involved with co-ops, my wife and I. And one of the big projects that any homeschool family deals with is, okay, we're going to, we're going to teach math. We're going to teach science. We're going to teach logic, whatever it may be. What textbooks am I going to use? And there is a thriving and thankfully so homeschool textbook industry that seeks to uh, Produced textbooks from a bygone era where there was still something of a foundation of a um, of a biblical worldview, but once the foundation changes, once the worldview changes, then, as you pointed out, the textbooks then become a vehicle um, for the ordering of society along the standards of the state, whatever that worldview of the state may be, to create quote good citizens. Well, there's nothing wrong with that. It's just that you need to be realizing if you're a Christian, you are a citizen of God's kingdom, and it's according to his standards and his law and his rule that you are to operate and think, and we know from what Scripture teaches us, uh, that kingdom has been under under attack from the beginning. Uh, We also know that it will will and is triumphing in history, but that doesn't mean the battle should be simply uh, um, turned away from and this issue of textbooks and education is a powerfully important one.
1: And so I had some personal experience with this back in the early part of 2020. I was um, working at a school and the school shifted because for at least for a couple of um, weeks, it turned into months that they weren't having in-class instruction. And so I was helping some of the children who were Having difficulty kind of getting into the mode of it. And so since the school used a particular Christian publisher, I won't men- mention the name, but because of what I knew from all the reading that I've done in various perspectives, I got to see a very sanitized view of important people in history. Abraham Lincoln, Louis Pasteur, Thomas Edison, even John D. Rockefeller. The way the textbook in short paragraphs presented these people, you would think no one had ever really disagreed with them while they were alive, that everybody thought that they were paradigms of virtue, and that the issues that caused certain conflicts, wars, disagreements in economics, it just was really nicely put in... Three paragraphs, moved on, and then, of course, there would be the multiple choice, fill in the blank, questions at the end. And so I actually had a hard time with this because it was like, wait a minute, this is not the only view on these people. But the textbook was what was being used. The children were going to be graded on that, and it got me thinking, why do we resort to having someone else tell us what to think as opposed to having the desire to investigate it ourselves.
0: That's part of the agenda of compulsory education and the component of the worldview attached to the educational process. Somebody is going to tell us what we need to think about things. Now, again, as I said at the very beginning, that's unavoidable. God will tell us how to think about things, and he has told us in his divine word. And as Dr. Van Til used to say, we are to think God's thoughts after him. But <clears throat> if that's not what we're dealing with, then we are being uh, compelled to think the thoughts of a humanistic God. And the textbooks uh, not only are to be the um, the conveyor belt for promoting these ideas at the earliest stages, and as Dr. Rustuni has shown in The Messianic Character of American Education, um, the people who have, have had great disdain for even the nominal biblical foundations of many of the states in these United States from the beginning have taken aim at that process of taking the minds of the youth and converting them to a humanistic way of thinking and believing, and the textbooks are a vehicle for doing that. Uh, or another if we can say that is, that education is the means of doing that. What's interesting, though, and part of what led to our thinking about this topic, were how textbooks become outdated and change. Um, you know, part of that too is the the uh, dialectical, Marxian, evolutionary worldview that's embedded in the humanistic foundations of our current way of thinking about life and education so textbooks have to be revised i think too part of that is built into the motive of of making sure you never run out of extra money to uh or or extra funds whereby you can compel people to buy newer and newer textbooks and you know all the rest of it it's sort of like the pharmaceutical industry you know you got to have newer newer drugs newer newer medical things and the same with this um i recall When I was in high school, in public school, I was in a series of classes where we studied uh, literature, history, and art together. And I was reading uh, in the history part of our studies about World War II, and there was a quote in this textbook I've never forgotten, and here's the reason I haven't forgotten it. Well, first of all, it's because of the extreme nature of the statement. It was a quote from Adolf Hitler, where according to this textbook, Hitler said, if you will not be a German, I will bash your skull. And so uh, at the time as a, you know, 10th grader, I thought that was kind of an interesting that somebody could claim to have that kind of power <laughs> to compel somebody. To, speaking of compulsion, well I was stunned some years later when I came across a quote from Hitler in his book Mein Kampf. And and this is not about defending Hitler, it's just this is the example that I that uh, stuck in my mind about how textbooks uh are, can't be trusted is that what he had actually said was that the trade unionists of his day, the socialists of his day, were saying, if you will not be a trade unionist, we will bash your skull. And yet it found its way into that textbook as something totally different. One more example. One of the uh, books that Dr. Rastuni referenced more than a few times in several of his writings was a remarkable book by Carl Zimmerman called Family and Civilization. Uh, Zimmerman taught at Harvard back in the 1940s, and this book was originally published in 1947. And I think in some places uh, it was used perhaps as a sociology textbook. I'm not sure about that, but it definitely has that kind of quality. Um, The first edition that I have is over 800 pages long. And you can see the really biblical foundation of which Zimmerman Zimmerman was operating from in terms of this issue of the family and civilization. Now, I bring this up because you can still find this book today from all the major book outlets, but it's not the first edition. It is a highly edited edition, and in some ways it doesn't read anything like the original. So this is an issue where knowledge is continually in flux from the standpoint of uh, people who think like this, And so it is continually needing to be revised, which means newer textbooks, ever-changing textbooks, and a shifting foundation uh, in terms of stability in society and and life.
1: And very often, people will take selected quotes. So I have seen quotes from Abraham Lincoln, avowing his atheism, his hatred of blacks, his hatred of Christians, and then I've seen quotes attributed to Abraham Lincoln about his faith in God and that even when he gave his Gettysburg Address, he's actually quoting John Wycliffe. So the point becomes, how do you know? And I think a lot of people get overwhelmed by saying, well, I don't know, maybe I'll trust this person to know. And that's like um deciding that someone else is going to be responsible for you when you stand before the Lord, right? Um Ben Franklin's experience is the best teacher. That's not his quote, but everybody thinks, well, if we just go ahead and experience something, we'll learn a lot. The actual quote is attributed in a book that I read was experience is a dear, meaning expensive teacher, the fool will learn in the school of no other. That's a lot different than experience is the best teacher. And then one final one, and this comes from a Christian publisher, which when I, again, I'm not going to mention the name, but when we were going through um science and the Christian publisher said that the Hebrew people were not allowed to eat pork and shellfish, because they didn't know about trichinosis. So God Almighty gave a law. Did that mean that God didn't understand or didn't know about trichinosis? He had to wait until science discovered this? So a lot of children have read through that science textbook, and I guess this was like third or fourth fourth grade, and you say like, Well, now they know that that no longer applies, that we should disregard what God says because now we know to cook pork a little bit more so that we kill the trichinosis. That's why if you care about being faithful, you have to filter whatever you read through the word of God and a proper understanding of it.
0: Yes, and as you have mentioned several times, uh, well, you, you haven't mentioned the names of publishers, but the point is just because a publisher has a history or reputation for being biblically faithful, that doesn't relieve you, the individual, or as the parent, or the responsibility to making sure that on whatever given subject that publisher may be producing material, it is in fact being faithful. My, uh, I have a very, very good friend who is involved, and I'm not going to get into a lot of detail, but this person's involved in looking over a lot of different types of books uh, for academic purposes and school purposes. And one of the things that they do is check out websites uh, that recommend books for Christians. And these are websites by and for Christians, supposedly. And uh you, you'd be stunned. Well, maybe you wouldn't be, but I think most people would be stunned when they look at some of the books that are being recommended, you know, for school libraries, church libraries, your own personal library, whatever. Some of these things are, are not in the least bit Christian, and in some cases profoundly immoral. Uh I, I know of one case that it was uh, a kid's book, and it's about these two creatures. Uh, I won't say more than that. But it turns out, as the story unfolds, that these two—you know—I'll say they're 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 two uh, two giraffes. Th- these two giraffes—they have these adventures, and it turns out that one of the giraffes is in love with another giraffe who's the same sex as that giraffe. So it you know it's a grooming effort on the on the uh, on the back of a book that's purportedly okay for a Christian to read. And if you just assume that these things are, whether it's a textbook or a kid's book or whatever it may be, without going to the trouble, but being your own vigilant person to qualify these things, we're no, we're far past the age when you can just simply assume that.
1: Right. And this week, as we were preparing, you sent me an article, which might at first glance Think, well, this this has nothing to do with our topic, but I think it does. And I'll let you explain the article in a second. But the the point that tied it in for me was this. So often we have a view of the past as though the way we think is the way people in the past thought. So when we study Rome or we study Greece or we study Egypt or whatever... You know, we have the cute pictures or we have the elegance kind of like what happens on social media. We just see the happy part. We don't see the down, dirty, ugly part. And it's very easy for people to then say, well, like in the case of your two giraffes, which probably weren't giraffes, you know, well, if two people love each other, I mean, this is this kind of thing goes way back. And who are we to decide that this is a bad thing? And. That comes from ignorance, because the ignorance doesn't stem from you haven't read everything there is to read on this subject. It comes from the fact that your starting point isn't how does this line up with God's word?
0: Yes, the article that you referenced and that I shared with you is making the point that however bad it was in ancient paganism, uh, even they had their limits. And that where we are today as a post-Christian society that's plunging headlong into a new type of paganism uh, is far, far worse. You know, I've said this from even just a moderate familiarity with the paganism of the ancient world and its sexual practices in particular. That what we've seen in recent decades uh, would have been stunning even to those societies where, for example, homosexuality was accepted. And in this article, as reference to a book that I have mentioned on our podcast previously, called From Shame to Sin, The Christian Transformation of Sexual Morality in Late Antiqu- Antiquity. And the man who wrote this book is a professor at the University of Oklahoma in classics and ancient literature. Um, the book was originally published in 2013, and it's, it's, it's like a bombshell. Because what he, and he's not writing from a distinctively Christian perspective, but he is looking at this from the perspective of, from, I guess you'd say, uh, sociological or historical. What impact did the teaching of biblical morality, as say, as uh, propounded by the Apostle Paul, and also in terms of the the law code, uh, the law of God, uh, uh, the Mosaic law code, as that began to proliferate through Christianity into these ancient pagan settings? how was that different? What kind of impact did it ha- did it have? And, you know, one of the standard things that you, speaking of textbooks, that you will get in, in some textbooks, is that, well, you know, uh, a lot of this uh, history of that time period was written by people who were pro-Christian. And so they had a vested interest in making the ancient people, the ancient pagan writers or philosophers or just the whole character of the time as this, this horrific society. And so it really wasn't anything like, or maybe not quite as bad as they're, you know, making it sound like. I know this is particularly the case with uh, uh, the study of ancient Gnosticism, which was an early Christian heresy, and several of the church fathers refer to these groups and that at least some of them were given over to extreme sensuality. You know, and and so some of that is dismissed as well. These people have a vested interest in making them look as bad as they possibly can be. Well, what this book that I just referred to has gone to uh, great lengths to show in over 300 pages, highly footnoted with, you know, original Greek and Latin sources and all the rest of it is that ancient society was as bad as all that and that it it, is, and on some level, it's incomprehensible to us. How hypersexually charged the society was, especially from uh, a male libidinous standpoint. And I'll just give you one example. I mean, or, well, th- this would encompass several, but typically, if a fa- if a man could afford a slave, and this would be obviously the higher classes. When we'll talk about ancient. Roman pagan society in the earliest Christian era, right up until, you know, maybe AD 400, that, uh, typically in, in the pagan height of that society, a man who could afford a slave, he would choose a boy or a girl as a slave, and that person would serve a sexual function for that man. And, you know, that's a, a claim and a charge that's amply uh, supported from the ancient sources themselves and again we just can't imagine a situation like that but that's what's the common thing in that day and time as was homosexuality but what's interesting about what this man has shown in the study and the article that I reference to you talks about it as well is that <clears throat> in terms of the dynamics of the homosexual relationship the passive partner in that relationship was disdained, was held in utter disgust, even though the the relationship itself was an accepted thing in that society. But if you were the male and on the passive side of that relationship, that was a a highly insulting and um, a a character that was highly, considered highly um, reprehensible. And so what we see today would have been, Astounding to even these people in ancient paganism because they, they, there were boundaries in their society as disgusting as they were that have gone completely beyond in our society so this is an area too where you know the 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 analysis of that period of early christian and pre christian history from what we have read from say some of the church fathers is probably pretty accurate, and I'll give you one last example that's cited in that article and in this this book that shows the level of depravity and how evil things had become. Now, this example was cited by one of the early church fathers in uh, sort of refuting the pagan, uh, his pagan counterpart to whom he was writing. And he said, you know, and I'm paraphrasing, he said, you know, the the example of how awful your culture has become is found in the example of the man who purchased a boy as a slave for his own sexual purposes. And as was typical in some Roman families, if they could afford enough slaves, the education of the children was generally left to other slaves. They would have like a tutor at home, but they were slaves who taught the other slaves. Well, this boy was purchased by this man. He served as uh, a a sexual uh, partner for the man. And then at a certain point, he sent the boy off to work in the fields. Well, <clears throat> when the, the 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 boy went out into the fields to work, it just so happened that he was placed in a work environment where the people who had educated him uh, were working alongside him. And they recognized each other. But what was found out and what was learned is that the man who purchased him was his biological father. And the man didn't even know that his own son had been taken into slavery and then sold in the slave market, and he purchased him. I mean, you can just imagine uh, the the evil and the degradation of that kind of system. Now, the claim is, well, this church father's made this sort of thing up. But based on what we know from this man's research and the book, From Shame to Sin, nope, it was every bit as bad as that. But where we are headed today is far worse.
1: And when you rewrite your history, whether you minimize it in a textbook or eliminate important things, what civilized the pagan world was Christendom, was the application of the Bible. And we can even concede it wasn't always done to the level of what the scripture requires, but it was a move in that direction. Much the same way when Christianity came to India, they stopped burning widows on the funeral pier of their, um, their husbands, right? Because that was not biblical. And so now we have parents bringing children to state schools or story times at, um, libraries. And they're actually allowing their children to be groomed so that they will become sexual slaves. Maybe it won't look the same way that it does or that it did in ancient Rome or Greece. But the fact remains that if you don't know where you've come from as a society, then you won't know where you're heading and you won't know, is this a good direction or a bad direction? And so my encouragement to parents who are either educating their children and hopefully educating themselves in the process is that just don't take all your information from one source. Uh, I recently went through a book and it was highly recommended by someone I respect. And I'm listening and I'm listening. And then all of a sudden, the authors are talking about the billions of years of evolution and how it all started with this bang and whatever. Well, suddenly I had to stop and say, hmm, how much of what it is I've just read and listened to Do I need to put on the maybe shelf rather than the truth shelf? Because if these people's presuppositions are so far off, how can I be sure that their conclusions are even remotely accurate?
0: Absolutely. And that is why the foundational nature of the textbook, uh, what is its worldview, uh, the authors, uh, the publishing company, if uh, any of our listeners know of people or if they themselves have children in the public school system, you know, what, what is the orientation of the school board? You know, what, what is their agenda? Is it promoting a biblical worldview uh, or is it promoting a pagan worldview? And so I would encourage our listeners to think very deeply about these things and to recognize that again, the conveyance of culture and civilization is unavoidably tied with religious faith. The question is, what is that faith? And is it founded on Holy scripture or is it not? And, you know, some people have the idea that maybe that means, oh, you mean all we do is study the King James Bible? No, obviously you, the, the Bible and the revelation of God and Holy scripture and the worldview it espouses is significant and is the most significant thing, but we build on that. God has given us a creation to live in from which we can think clearly about the, the way the creation works. I happen to believe myself that God has built into the fabric of his creation things like the laws of logic so that a thing can't be and not be at the same time. That's the way God thinks, I believe. So it's important to think through these things and to recognize that Textbooks are vitally important. They are a vehicle for conveying a worldview, and they're not the same as Holy Scripture from our standpoint, obviously, but nevertheless, they they are very, very important. And asking ourselves, what's the theme of this book? Who are the authors who wrote it? What's their agenda? As you mentioned, the one you read, it maybe took you a few pages into the book or more to realize back of the agenda was an evolutionary worldview. So... Uh we, we have to be vigilant in these things.
1: And just to clarify, I finished the book. It's not like I didn't, um, but it gave me things to then consider and investigate. So I heard somebody's point of view. I'm not suggesting that people don't examine other points of view as soon as they encounter them and say, oh well, this person um if for example isn't Trinitarian. Okay. You factor that in to what you're reading and learning. But I mentioned four people as just examples. Abraham Lincoln, Louis Pasteur, Thomas Edison, and John D. Rockefeller. Depending on what you learned about all those people, it is a worthwhile activity to find out those who think they weren't all that great shakes. <laughs> but that doesn't mean you just find somebody who hated Pasteur or hated John D. Rockefeller. you got to find out why they did. And then if you can find people who have a biblical world and life view, and they're going to explain that, yes, John D. Rockefeller probably did great things for the oil industry, but he also took over medical schools with his finances, and that's how we got a monopoly on medicine and the pharmaceutical companies, etc. You don't even have to agree with me that that's something that is true, but you should at least know for example, Thomas Edison. Oh, who doesn't love Thomas Edison? Well, there are those who say he stole Tesla's ideas and basically was not somebody you would want to do business with. Read both sides of it before you present him as a hero. You may decide, no, that guy's view is not right, but it's important to know that it's not just the three paragraphs that, you know, get included in the textbook.
0: I'll uh, wrap up my part of uh, the discussion, Andrea, by calling to mind, some of our listeners may remember, this issue of textbooks in the government schools was a very big one some years ago. I don't know, maybe 10, 20, 30 years ago, there were frequent battles uh, with school boards from parents about the type of textbooks that were going to be used and the content of those textbooks. We don't see too much about that anymore. I think that, that maybe in some places it still goes on, but One reason for that is that the type of textbooks that Christian parents in particular who had their children in government schools did not want to see, uh, they largely failed in keeping those things out of the government school. And so we are now seeing half a generation later the results where parents are not so much focused on getting certain types of textbooks uh, removed and substituted by better ones from a biblical standpoint. They're focused on keeping their children from drag queen story hours or keeping their daughters from being raped in women's rooms by a transgendered person. Uh, so those things have borne fruit, and this is the society where we find ourselves now. So this is, again, a tremendously important issue, uh, compulsory education. And uh, I, I want to recommend, again, Dr. Rush book, The Messianic Character of American Education, and also just about anything by Sam Blumenfeld on that topic.
1: Yes. And, uh, as far as, um, investigating the proper use of textbooks or whatever, especially homeschooling parents need to realize that they may need to undo some of their own education. And that's fine. It's far better to teach your children how to work, to have some sort of skill that allows them to help the family um financially and eventually give themselves an occupation or something or or skill set, for example, to be a good adult in terms of being able to be wise with your resources and such. This focus on academics as the epitome of being educated really plays into the whole idea we got to get the right textbooks. If I've when I used to um be at homeschool conventions and we would have our Chalcedon table people would come over and say, What curriculum do you have? And I said, Well, we don't exactly have curriculum. What we have are different views that will give you a good no, 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 I just need I just need to go buy something because I have to do something for my tenth grader. And the idea that somehow or other they were going to buy this predigested package and it was going to make them understand things better. The sad part about it, Charles, is by the time that these same homeschool graduates got to college they had not investigated things enough so that when they were hearing a different point of view, they didn't have the same evaluation skills that they should have had because the parents were looking for the pre-digested thing. So um, you might save a ton of money by not buying curriculum and making sure that your children are good readers, to make sure that your children can discern things from a biblical world and life view. And then along the way. As need arises, they will learn how to add, subtract, multiply, and divide in order to live in a world in which they're going to be adults and have to engage in these things. But it's really not as complicated as it can come across, but it's not like it's without work. I totally agree. All right. Well, Happy New Year, everybody. And thanks for listening. And once again, if you want to reach us, out of the question podcast at gmail.com is the way to do it and we'll talk to you next time.
0: Thanks for listening to Out of the Question. For more information on this and other topics, please visit calcedon.edu.